This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thank you for listening. Today, our unicorn builder is Jerome Turnick, CEO and founder of Smart Recruiters, a hiring success platform that's raised $225 million in funding. Jerome, thanks for chatting with me today. No, thanks for having me, Brett. Not a problem. Why don't you go ahead and make us jealous? Tell us about your uh, your day-to-day in Costa Rica. What was it like at the, uh, the start of the day, and how was your morning? My morning was great. Nice sunrise. I'm off the coast of Pacific here. It's a nice and chill day, so... Uh, really good. It's actually interesting to enjoy uh, remote work in the jungle of Costa Rica. That's awesome. Now, to kick things off, could we just maybe talk a little bit about your background? And what I want to zoom in on is your your time in recruiting. So you've been in this recruiting space for a, a very, very long time. I think I read it was the early 90s when you launched your first recruiting company. So take me back to the early 90s and the founding of that first company. Well, as uh, born and raised in France, I um went to um, a good university there and then applied to jobs as I was a young graduate trying to figure out what I want to do. I took a job at a consulting firm and I got bored, resigned after 90 days. It's just nothing wrong with the company, but I just realized this is not what I wanted to be. So I moved to Prague of all places back when it was still Czechoslovakia. And um, right after the Berlin Wall fell with a friend of mine and $2,000 figuring out you know, what kind of company we could create. And we asked people around and everybody had the same message. Said, My God, there's so much you could do in this country, but gee, it's hard to find good people. And so we're like, you know, we don't speak Czech, but we probably could help uh, companies hire people. And that's how we started a recruiting business. And timing was good. We were a recruiting agency that actually grew quite fast. We went to like 300 people over seven years opened offices across all Central and Eastern Europe, all the way to Moscow and, and Kiev and you name it. And that really had started my career in recruiting. And then from there, you know, you just keep pulling a, a string, it feels right. So internet came around. I'm like, gee, this internet thing is going to change the way we work. It's going to change the way we hire for sure. So I moved to London, started an applicant tracking system, which were the, you know, the first generation of recruiting software. And then uh, did that for 10 years, sold that company in 2010 and ended up in a way doing it again. I wasn't done with it. We can talk about why. And I moved to San Francisco and started the Smart Recruiters in 2011. So you started that company there. I think it was Mr. Ted, it looks like. You started that in mm-hmm. 2000. So what was it like building a tech company back in 2000? And the reason I ask is a lot of the founders that we have listening in, they're first-time founders. They're just launching their companies. And yeah, we always hear these stories about the early days of the internet and all this stuff. But what was it like you know, on the front lines there building a tech company at that time? It was an interesting times, I would say. So for me, it was like talk about free money. 99, 2000 was just absolutely free money. When I started Mr. Ted, we did a, a seed round or a pre-seed round. We basically had a piece of paper, no legal entity, nothing. Uh, we did a pre-seed round and Accenture, uh, which at the time was Accenture Technology Ventures, gave us $3 million on $10 million three for essentially just going along with the flow. And you know, in my world, this was completely crazy. And we just raised a ton of money. Like I ended up doing a, a round where we said we want to... We want to raise three million in three months, and if you invest in June, you get this price. In July, it's that price. In August, it's this price. Right? This was our pitch to the business angel world, and we ended up raising eleven and a half million in three weeks, still with no product and no revenue. 
The wake-up call was hard, September 11, that kind of culminated the market turnaround. And so what was it like? It was like we sold more in Q3 of 2001 than we did in 2002 and three combined. So that's in terms of um, bookings. It was an interesting time. Wow. That's incredible. When it comes to your inspiration, are, are there any founders that come to mind that have just really inspired you? Or it may be, if not a founder, or specific teams that have really inspired you along the way? I'm inspired by founders, all of them. But I'm not just thinking about you know Musk, Bezos, or Benioff, or of course I'd be inspired by by them. But I'm inspired by everybody, all the ones that got stuck in C, the ones that made it through Series A, never made it through Series A in tech and beyond. Right? I'm inspired by my wife who launched a, an African-inspired skincare brand called Usari. I'm inspired by John Jackson, who I first uh, met when he was an inmate at Pelican Bay and uh, is now scaling uh, Hustle 2.0, which is a program that actually helped him got out in the first place. I'm inspired by the Chinese family who used to run the dry cleaning service in my street and got evicted you know, after 20 years after as uh, these prices went up. I mean, I have just such admiration for anyone who is ready to push their boundaries and, and defy the odds, create something new. And I think every founder has that in common, regardless of stage, industry, success. It's just admirable. Did you have entrepreneurs and, and founders around you when you were younger? Or when, when did you have that first kind of interaction with entrepreneurship? Yeah, I was born in an entrepreneurial family, I suppose. Uh, both grandfather uh, were entrepreneurs, um, fairly successful at it. You know, traditional French industrial background, but both were entrepreneurs. And so I, I think I grew up with it. And I grew up thinking, you know, this is just me. And as I was saying earlier, right, I, I took a job and I resigned after 90 days. I was nothing wrong there, but I deep inside, I felt that I want to be, I want to live on the edge of my comfort zone. I don't want to live inside. Do you find it harder to continue to live on the edge of your comfort zone with the success and, and the growth that you've experienced with this company and your career? Oh, no. It's actually getting uh, easier. And, and it's easier because you are always on the edge. If you're not on the edge, then you're doing something wrong, right? I mean, if you're not on the edge, you're not pushing yourself hard enough, I suppose. And so I, I find it actually more enjoyable. It's probably the difference, right? The early days, the struggle is, is painful. And after some time, the struggle becomes enjoyable because you realize that actually the struggle is what makes you move forward. And if you don't struggle, then you're probably not moving fast enough or something's wrong. It's a great mindset to have. What about books that have had a major influence on you? And the way we like to frame this, it comes from an author called Ryan Holiday or named Ryan Holiday. He calls them quick books. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core, really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind? Yeah, it's actually uh, not such a quick book, but it's a good book. I'd go with Long Walk to Freedom, uh, which is uh, Nelson Mandela's autobiography. I mean, talk about someone that's determined to change the status quo, uh, lives in apartheid, serves 27 years in prison, and comes out and is elected president uh, with a task of dismantling the legacy of apartheid, and he chooses to foster racial reconciliation because that's what he believes in. I mean, talk about purpose meets resilience. And to me, that that is the core foundation of an entrepreneur. And he got to do that and change an entire country, inspire the whole world. I mean, you know, in a way, Mandela is, he may be the ultimate founder. 
and the founder of a nation. And I, I admire that. And I think I take a lot of lessons from that, from staying very, very true to your purpose and obviously beat everybody on resilience. So if you have resilience and purpose, then nothing wrong can happen to you. And if you allow me a second one, I'd say uh, amp it up from Frank Flutman, uh, kind of more down to earth, you know, leading hyper growth with high expectation, high urgency, and high intensity. And uh, the playbook from ServiceNow and Flowflake is is a really good read. That's a quick book. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating read. And it's a fun read too because he's an operator, you know, currently in this role and, and executing. And I feel like most of the yeah. time with these books, it's people who have, you know, had a few years to reflect and think about things. And yeah, that's that's very different with Frank. So love that book. On the topic of Mandela's book and what you mentioned there with purpose, how do you think about your life's purpose? Oh, I'm very clear about it. And it's very aligned to who Smart Recruiters is. I'm I'm we're here to make hiring easy. And I think as I was saying earlier, back in when I sold Mr. Ted, um, it was a successful exit, nothing you know extravagant like we would see these days, but successful exit. They gave me more money that I could reasonably spend, and I was like, you know, so what am I going to do now? Do I just go sit on the beach and wait? And I decided I wasn't done with it, right? I, I actually, you know, applicant tracking systems had done a lot of things for recruiting, but they certainly hadn't make make it easier. And so I went back to work purely for the purpose. And my seed deck from Smart Recruiter says I want to eradicate unemployment. And I think today we, you know, we process probably about 100 million candidates a year. And I'm hoping we make their job and their life a little easier every day. Let's zoom in a little bit on the company. And just for those who aren't familiar with what the company does, can you just give us the high level overview or the elevator pitch? Sure. So Smart Recruiters, it's simple. We make hiring easy. It's absolutely that simple. We help enterprises mostly achieve hiring success, which is the ability to attract, select, and hire amazing talent at scale. Just to understand where you fit in the competitive landscape for our listeners' ears here. So we've had Marcelo on from Remote. We had Tony Jamis on Oyster. Do you view those as competitors or where do smart recruiters fall in the competitive landscape with those companies? Yeah, we are upstream from Oyster, certainly remote. So we really help with talent acquisition. So if you are a large organization, so we serve mostly enterprises, think, you know, five to 50,000 employees, and we help them with marketing to candidates, so attracting candidates into the pipeline, selecting candidates, so managing all the processes and hiring and onboarding them. Then we integrate with the likes of Oysters or frankly, SAP, Workday, Oracle, and everything else that's downstream. We also help companies hire internally. So we really are the system of record for all things hiring for our customers. How did COVID impact the business? Did it have a major impact? Yeah, it had a, absolutely a major impact. I mean, certainly we, you find that the world is shut down. Nobody's hiring. A lot of people are being fired, starting with recruiting teams. And for us, it actually was a defining moment. And it was a moment of going back to our purpose, interestingly, because we're like, okay, the world is not hiring and we are technically in trouble, I would imagine. We were a remote company, so that didn't really have an effect on us in terms of having to transition. But at that time, we, we just recentered on our purpose. And then I remember that conversation with the team saying, look, we're here to help people find jobs. And if millions of people are being fired, well, I guess our mission has just become even more important. And so instead of you know being scared and not moving into that market, we actually leaned in 
And uh, we started to help our customers and we created free training. We created a job board to help recruiters find jobs like recruiters, recruiting recruiters. We really like leaned into our industry and we messaged as well to the market like, well, guys, actually, if you're not hiring, maybe now is the time to upgrade your recruiting software, right? Because otherwise how do you change the engine of a plane where you're flying? And it resonated with the market. And so very interestingly, we actually had a massively successful uh, year in 2020 with bookings that went up 70%, despite, you know, on paper, nobody's hiring at that point and we were in trouble. So for me, it was actually a very interesting lesson of uh, when in trouble, go back to purpose. What about in the early days? Were there any moments where it just seemed like smart recruiters maybe wasn't going to work out? Or was it clear from day one that this was going to be a, a viable business and a, and a viable company? I think it's never clear. And whenever, as you progress, the questions change, but the clarity and the need for clarity in my mind remains. I started smart recruiters, as I said, with a, a simple vision to make hiring easy. And my, my view was, Applicant tracking systems, the first generation of recruiting software, have failed to make hiring easy. They certainly have not helped companies hire more efficiently. Managers are disengaged. Candidates have a bad experience. I knew that there was something better we could do that clearly makes a, an impact and makes it easier. And so when I moved to San Francisco to start smart recruiters, we really said, okay, in an ideal world, how would a recruiting software work? And uh, we created our first version was a free software. And the, the thesis there was, well, we're going to get so many companies come and use our free recruiting software. That's so amazing. And we're going to get so many candidates applying to those companies. And there's so many recruiters and other people. We could create a marketplace here. And uh, that was completely wrong. So we got to 50,000 customers pretty fast, like really fast because everybody is hiring. But then we realized that we couldn't monetize. And so, uh, you know, right before Series B, we had to put a all good things must, must come to an end sign. And we put up a paywall and started to get customers to pay for the software. But that was our like early days. And it went very good because when you start as a free software, you're forced to deliver end user value because they vote with their clicks every day. So those DNA is still deep in smart recruiters and, and we are known in the industry for having the most usable, the most user-friendly, the most collaborative recruiting cluster. But from a purely from a, a thesis and a, a business model, we had to pivot 180 degrees four years in, three years in. As I'm sure you've experienced, the entrepreneurial journey has a lot of highs and a lot of lows. What do you think was the lowest point so far in this journey? I think the lowest point was, was COVID which uh, we covered at that point in time, like we really had to think about us existentially and what we're doing. That, that was a very low, hard moment for us. It turned around really well, but for a few weeks, months, I don't know that anybody could have predicted what we do. And frankly, a lot of competitors uh, got derailed out of that. So that was a low. Another low, I think, is is when uh, uh, when funding environment change and suddenly your 50% growth on 30% negative EBITDA doesn't look sexy at all anymore and uh, you're asked to slow down and, uh, and become more effective, more efficient. That, for many companies, is a low and I would say a low out of respect also for people that had to leave smart recruiters. It's probably a year, two years ago we did that uh, transition. But I think it's a reality of tech companies that you adapt to your market 
And uh, if money is cheap, then you grow fast. If money is not cheap, then you grow slowly. So we covered the lows there. Let's talk a little bit about the highs. And, and one high in particular, we like to ask, of course, because this is Unicorn Builders, is the high of you know realizing and, and finding out that you had, in fact, built a billion-dollar company. So it looks like that news came out in 2021. Take us behind the scenes. What was it like for you that day when you crossed that threshold and, and found out it would be a billion-dollar company? The fundraising kind of validates that. I think you know that you're onto something when you have repeatability. And when you see that you can scale your product and your services at a level that, you know, gets you to a hundred million plus in revenue with velocity. So to me, the funding validation is what it is. It's a funding validation. We could talk about, about funding in general, but that's what it was. So for me, the, the more important uh, moment is the moment of scale. When you get uh, large customers coming in and you are seeing the repeatability in it, that process of uncovering the ideal customer and scaling it is really where, where it becomes real. Makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Can you give us an idea of the size of the platform today. And again, this is, you know, for those who are listening in, they understand it's a big company, but how big is it? Any numbers or metrics you can share just to demonstrate the scale you're operating at would be awesome. Sure. We have just over a thousand enterprise customers. So think large organizations such as Visa or LinkedIn, Twitter, Red Bull, Domino's, Bosch, so big established companies. They collectively um, hire probably just under a million people a year, kind of the volumes we are seeing. And we process, as I was saying before, about 100 million applicants, give or take, at varies uh, with the market. So, and we do that in 120 countries. So it's, it is a real platform. It has a lot of volume. A lot of employees are using it from those companies. And it's a responsibility we have. Uh, when you are in charge of managing job applicants and hiring outcomes, uh, you really have a, a responsibility on accessibility, on compliance, on diversity. Like it's a, it's a big part of our job to ensure that everyone is treated fairly and uh, that we optimize the hiring outcomes for our customers. What do you attribute to the success and the growth? I'm sure there's a lot of things you've done right. There's probably a few things you've done wrong. But if we had to really try to distill it into a few key points, what do you think you've gotten right? I think the Smartians, as we call ourselves, are really exceptional. And we, and of course, this is what we sell, right? We sell a hiring software and, and uh, that allows you to achieve hiring success and so on. But, it, but truth be told, this is something we have prioritized internally. And the people that are at Smart Recruiters have really uh, been exceptional. And from there, then you get the right technology, you get the right go-to-market, you get people who care beyond what their job says. And I think if you care... And it's a feedback that, interestingly, we get a lot from customers. Like, yeah, yeah, well, the product, this, that, okay, our RFP, and we're going to... But you know what? At the end of the day, Jerome, we feel that you guys care. It's, it's a feedback I, I really get often. And I think this is important. If your team cares, you actually win. What about your market category? How have you approached category? 
there's a lot of conversation about, and we've had those conversations about creating a category or or living inside an existing category. We live inside an existing category. We're redefining the recruiting technology space, and we are in a replacement market. So you have an old applicant tracking system that you bought in the you know 2000 year 2000. Candidates hate it. They don't apply. Managers don't use it. Recruiters are miserable. This whole thing is not working. Most of the recruiting happens offline. Now you change and uh, you go to a modern platform that has a great user experience for candidates, helps you bring candidates in that managers love using and recruiters finally are in control. That pitch is simple. I love that motion. The replacement motion is, is perfect. There is a budget, there's a pain, there's a solution, and there's a timing. You just need to be 10x better than whoever you are replacing, which in our case, applicant tracking systems have, have come and they're going away. So it's it's a good motion. What about fundraising? So I know we touched on that a little bit, 225 million to date. What have you learned throughout this journey? Timing would be the uh, one thing I learned. When you fundraise, you do want to get, you know, ideally five competing term sheets. But the thing is, you don't want to have five competing term sheets over a period of two months. It's not useful. You want to have five competing term sheets on the same day, in the same week at least. And so if you work from there, then it's a sales uh, process, right? You have pipeline, you have stages, you have conversion on a tightly controlled timing. And you drive everybody comfortably, but you drive every conversation towards we are expecting term sheet on that day. Of course, you have to know that you're going to get at least one to get there. But I see uh, uh, fundraise, and I used to do fundraise as in, okay, I speak to one today and I speak to another tomorrow. And then and then, and then different level of conversation are maturing at different pace and you never get the momentum that you truly need. So I would say, think of it as a process, control the timing, be picky. And if you can get two term sheets, you know, one term sheet to finance the company, two to make a market, you can get two plus term sheet on the same day. That's the right way. And then it's a marriage, right? So make sure you read the prenup. If you look at what's happening after that, you are going to be in with the investors you choose for for a decade. So make sure you know what you're getting into. How impactful was that move you made to the Bay Area when you were starting the company? Do you think you could have raised as much and had as much success if you weren't based in Silicon Valley? I wouldn't have started the business if I wasn't based in Silicon Valley. And I remember that as a conversation with my family. I really wouldn't. I think if you're going to, and especially at the time, it's less true today, but if if you're going to build a big company and in enterprise software, you have to start in the U.S. You have to be successful in the U.S. Now you could start it in Sweden and then move over to the U.S. You could start it in Canada and move over to the U.S. at some point. But at that point, you're actually trying to relocate yourself because you have some success. So for me, San Francisco was instrumental. And by the way, I, I when I started my first round, I had VCs tell me, oh, you're, you're based in San Francisco. Hmm. Yeah, we're in Palo Alto. Uh, would you consider relocating? Because it's a bit far. That's how concentrated the funding environment felt for me coming in as a repeat entrepreneur, repeat founder, but as a first time fundraising in, in the Bay Area. You know, since then, everybody's funding everybody in every country and it kind of doesn't matter. So I don't know that this would be still true today. Access and success on the U.S. market is key, and certainly in enterprise. But let's imagine you were 20 years old. You could move anywhere in the world. You're going to start a tech company. Would it be the Bay Area or Silicon Valley now, or do you think it doesn't matter really where you are? I think it doesn't matter anymore. 
And, um, you know, us talking today with me being in Costa Rica as a proof of that, I think it doesn't matter. And I love the fact that it doesn't matter anymore. It matters less and less. I think the distribution of opportunity around the world, the distribution of wealth, the distribution of jobs is happening. The globalization of work in a way is happening and it's happening fast. And I like that. I like that trend. And so I would say um, to a founder now looking or to myself uh, now looking to start a business, I would say just start the business and you'll find the talents you need where you need them and you'll find the money you need where it is. Let's imagine that you were starting the company again today from scratch. Based on everything you've learned so far, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Uh, focus, undoubtedly. I think startups are Accelerated learning under extreme uncertainty is uh, how it's sometimes qualified, and it's very true. Every day and every dollar has to go to building and validating exactly the business that you're trying to build and validate. We had too much false positive at smart recruiters. Like we come to an industry where everybody's hiring and it's difficult for everyone. So you could be a startup, you could be the city of San Francisco, you could be a hot tech company, you could be an industrial concern, you could be a pizza delivery. Everybody needs to hire. And uh, if you build a nice software, then everybody wants to buy your software. But this is not, this is not failing. It's not scalable. It's like you, you know, you open a restaurant where you are the chef and all the food is in the neighborhood are coming and they tell you, oh my God, the food is so great. We love your restaurant. And like, well, yeah, but all that means is you're a good chef, right? And they are hungry. But it doesn't mean you have a restaurant and it certainly doesn't mean you have a, you know, a Big Mac recipe that allows you to open 10,000 restaurants. So I think the, the false positive is one of the dangers of startups. And that's the advice I would give myself because I, I think we fell for it a bit too much. So focus, go validate who is your ideal customer, what's your proposition, ignore everybody else, ignore all the tempting deals and everything around it that would make you being defocused, tempting and enjoyable. Just stay focus on validating your business and your idea and your market and your go-to-market and all the things that go behind that. As I was preparing for this interview, I was watching a lot of YouTube videos and there were a number of keynotes that you delivered. And I noticed you were just a very powerful speaker, a very strong speaker. How did you really refine and master that skill? Because it's very difficult to be on stage and to be able to captivate an audience. It's even more difficult to do it online. But I found myself watching a video of you from, I think it was three years ago, and I was engaged, I was listening, and I was excited. So how did you develop that skill? Thank you for that. I think it's practice. But it's mostly, you have to believe your own stuff, right? And I, I am very mission-driven. Um, start with the why. It's, uh, it's something that, you know, that comes from the heart. And so if you are mission-driven, then, then you feel what you're saying, and then you actually uh, convey it with passion. I think it's my main advice or my main recipe. And other than that, you know, I still think that practicing is good. I still suffer from my French native, and I have to work on that. But passion is what drives me. What about your book? I saw that you wrote a book as well. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I wrote a book called Hiring Success, uh, which is how visionary CEOs compete for talent. And I wrote this book because I was not tired, but I was really intrigued to see how many CEOs go around the world saying, I want to hire top talent. And then they give recruiting to HR and uh, they don't fund it at all. And they measure it by time to hire and uh, cost per hire, like right? faster and cheaper. And 
actually, no, recruiting is not an HR process. It's a sales process. You want a great talent? Well, go get them, right? And so I was, I was really trying to reconcile those worlds and make a plea for recruiting to be invested in. If you want to hire top talent, it's not difficult. You just got to go, go and attract the right people, which means marketing. Give them a great experience so they want to work for you. Be good at uh, selecting them and then uh, offer something competitive. It's not hard. It's actually really not hard. But so many CEOs fail to, uh, to execute on that. And they look at HR and they're like, yeah, I don't know what's happening, but I don't have the best team. And you look at every big CEO like the Steve Jobs and uh, these are all people who were absolutely maniac about hiring great talent. What about skills that are required for founders to be successful? What do you think are the most important skills today? I would say resilience is an important skill. At least if you're going to go and start a company, then you should know that it's going to be hard. There's no easy peasy, this just happened and, I, and now we are a unicorn and everybody's laughing. This just does not happen. You have to be prepared for the ups and downs of being a CEO, of being a founder. You have to be prepared for the journey, for the journey of being a founder and moving from being a founder to being a CEO and for that CEO job to grow and to change. And I think for me, the common denominator actually of founders, if I refine the resilience, might actually be obsession. CEOs that, or founders that succeed are obsessed and resilient. Maybe they go together. Final question for you. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision here? What's next for you? What are you excited about? Well, I'm super excited. I mean, think of where we are, right? We are, we operate in recruiting. And what is recruiting? Recruiting is a conversation. It's actually a set of small conversations that need to be had on fairly efficient and automated way. And well, as everyone has noticed, conversation just got a lot easier. And so I think we're only getting started here. And, and I, I would love to think that one of the areas where AI will be leveraged in the most productive and fair way is in recruiting. And from the very day that I started Smart Quickers, I've always said to the engineering team, you know, the engineers, they come and say, so Jerome, what is your, what is the one feature you would love to have? Like, well, what is the holy grail? I think the holy grail is sink, or I press a button and hop. A candidate appears, or vice versa, I press a button and help a job appear. And this reality is actually getting close, very close. Currently, we're in an arms race in the market where candidates now have AI applying to jobs and companies have AI to filter those applications. So now you can, for 50 bucks a month, you can have an AI apply to a thousand jobs overnight for you. And on the other side, and companies are trying to control the flow. This has to stop. And I think we can actually bring the conversation to a level of quality and precision that allows us to broker introductions between candidates and managers in a constructive and peaceful way and finally make hiring easy. Amazing. I love the vision and I've really enjoyed and, and loved this conversation. We are up on time, so we'll need to wrap here. Before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in and they just want to continue to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? Uh, LinkedIn is where I hang out. All right. Amazing. Jerome, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me, Brett. Not a problem. Keep in touch.